We now proceed with the final chapter in the book, The Atonement, by Arthur W. Pink. And we will proceed in chapter 24, The Atonement, Its Rejection. All the race of Adam are guilty before God, and consequently none of them can by any works of their own find acceptance with him. Almost every page of scripture bears testimony to this truth. The whole scheme of revelation takes it for granted. The plan of salvation taught in the word could have no place on any other supposition. The Son of Man came here to save that which was lost. Were we not exposed to danger, there could be no salvation. When the Lord Jesus called Paul and sent him forth to preach to men, it was to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, Acts 26.18. Here we have the character of the whole Gentile world. They are as ignorant of the true character of God and of the way of acceptance with him as blind men are ignorant of the real nature of the objects of sight. They walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. That the world is guilty before God is not only declared by Scripture, but is also to be seen by the present state of man with regard to happiness. It is obvious to any impartial observer that the human race is miserable, even amidst its mirth and dissipation. Men are seeking happiness, a proof that they do not have it, from the enjoyment of earthly things, according to their various tastes and appetites, but they find it not. From the highest to the lowest, there is that which mars their peace and enjoyment. The very things which the poor regard as evidence of happiness of the rich are but so many devices to drive away sorrow. If they would honestly express themselves, the millionaire in his mansion and the king on his throne would declare all is vanity and vexation of spirit. True happiness is to be found in God alone. In such a state of guilt and misery is placed the whole human race. It is indeed a melancholy truth, but one which is altogether incontestable. Instead, then, of disputing the divine testimony, let us inquire from the same authority whether there be any way of escape. Is the fate of fallen men as hopeless as that of fallen angels? No, blessed be God, it is not. The same word of truth which tells of man's ruin announces the divine remedy. The same book which describes human guilt and wretchedness tells of a way of deliverance therefrom. The one who, in the exercise of his high sovereignty, reserved the sinning angels in everlasting chains of darkness unto the judgment of the great day, has in his abounding mercy provided salvation for undone sinners of Adam's race. The divine way of salvation is a most stupendous, momentous monument of divine wisdom and grace, of sovereignty and power, of justice and mercy that ever was exhibited in this world. God has provided a Savior who by his virtuous life and vicarious death has made atonement for sin by which all his people obtain eternal life. The whole scope of revelation from the first intimation made in Eden, Genesis 3.5.15, to the end of the New Testament bears witness to this marvelous and precious way of salvation. The divine promises declare it, the types illustrated it, the prophets foretold it. When the Son of Man was here, he announced that he came to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. Almost everyone knows that a ransom is a price paid for the recovery of anything that is lost to its original owner. The uniform teaching of the epistle is that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. 
The scriptures are both full and clear in making known the way in which guilty sinners are interested in the atonement of Christ. Even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a perpetuation through faith in his blood, to declare his for his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is the boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay. But by the law of faith. Romans 3, 22-27. In this passage, the apostle not only establishes the guilt of man in the atonement of Christ, but also clearly asserts that faith is the medium through which sinners are interested in the work of Christ. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans 4, 5. Can anything be more explicit? Can anything be more directly to the point? Salvation must be given gratuitously, that no flesh may glory in God's presence. The reward of the man that worketh, the apostle says, is not of grace, but of debt. It therefore follows that works of no kind whatever can give a title to the atonement of Christ or the favor of God. But let it be said with emphasis that a saving reception of Christ's atonement is, by such a faith, which effectually changes the heart and the mind so that the desires and pursuits of its recipient are entirely different than formerly. There has ever been a need to press this fact, for the enemies of the gospel change it as unfriendly to good works. But in these terrible days, when multitudes who profess to be saved by grace through the redemption of Christ are giving the lie to their profession by continuing in a course of self-will and self-indulgence, the need for making clear this fact is doubly evident. Saving faith is that which purifieth the heart, Acts 15.9. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Formerly, the Christian sought for happiness in the pleasure, honors, or riches of this world. Now he seeks it in those things which are above. He abhors the things in which he once delighted and delights in what he once abhorred. For I delight in the law of God, says the apostle, after the inward man, Romans 7:22. Many things in the commandments of Jesus Christ are so disagreeable to flesh and blood that they are, parenthesis figuratively, called the cutting off of the right hand or the plucking out of the right eye. Yet the Christian not only acquiesces, but finds pleasure in yielding obedience to Christ in such things. True, he still has a corrupt nature to struggle against, that his delight is decidedly in the law of his God. Saving faith is that which overcometh the world, 1 John 5, 4. But we must now make a closer approach to our immediate theme. The proclamation of mercy through the atonement of the incarnate Son of God is called the gospel, or good news, because it announces deliverance from condemnation and eternal life to every believer. But it also necessarily implies and plainly denounces tidings of a very opposite nature to all who reject it and in general to all the workers of iniquity. If it proclaims life to those who receive it, then death must be the portion of all who neglect it. This solemn fact is made prominent throughout the New Testament in the most awful and striking manner. Many are sheltering behind a profession of Christianity 
and fondly hoping that there is a sort of genial impunity in sin on account of the death of Christ, but all such are fatally deluded, for the gospel denounces wrath against all who do not receive it and against all evildoers. In the great commission which our Lord gave first to his apostles, he asserted as expressively that they who believe the gospel shall be saved as that they who believe it not shall be damned. Mark 16.16 What the gospel is was shown in our last chapter and Galatians 1.8 announces that any deviation from that gospel, any substitution of another brings down the curse of heaven upon the one who proclaims it and by parative reasoning on those who accept it. What would be thought of this by those who pride themselves on their liberality of sentiment? who make the belief or rejection of the truth a matter of trifling consideration. Here is the truth, God's truth. The rejection of the gospel means the perdition in hell of both soul and body forever. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Romans 1, 16-18. If the whole of these three verses be read attentively, it will be seen that the gospel contains both a revelation of the righteousness of God and also of his wrath. In like manner, the same chapter which tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3:16 also declares, He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Verse 36. The condemnation of all who are ignorant of the true God and who reject the gospel of Christ is made known in Second Thessalonians 1, 7-9. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This language is so terrible and decisive that nothing but the blindness and hardness of a depraved heart could defy it. To know God and receive his Son is eternal life, John 17:3. but to be ignorant of the true character of God and reject his gospel entails eternal damnation. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 2, 1-3 Let those who trifle with their souls and refuse to seriously attend unto the gospel learn from this that God is in earnest in what he declares in the scriptures. It seems incredible that people can hear and read unmoved the awful denunciations which the word of truth hurls against them. They surely cannot believe that such threatenings proceed from him who cannot lie. Too late shall they discover that every word in them shall be faithfully executed. Perhaps some are inclined to ask at this point, how can God justly punish men for receiving a Savior who never died for them? Many have regarded this as an insoluble problem, yet it is capable of a simple solution. First, let us duly attend to the plain and solemn declaration of Christ himself. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, John 3.18. Nothing could be plainer than that. 
if any find it difficult to fit that verse into their theology, then something is wrong with their theology. Christ is despised and rejected of men. It is quite true that every man lies under the condemnation of God before the gospel first comes to him. A judgment for Adam's offenses rests upon him, Romans 5, 12, 19, to which is added the guilt of his own transgressions. But it is also true that additional guilt and condemnation comes to those who spurn the advance of divine mercy made unto them through the gospel. There are degrees of criminality, as there will be a punishment. Clear proof is furnished in these solemn words of Christ, and thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Matthew 11, 23, 24. So too more tolerable shall it be in the day of judgment for the unevangelized section of heathendom than it will be for the multitudes in Christendom who refuse to obey the gospel. Christendom's sins are going to be punished, parenthesis, the more severely, for having scorned the glad tidings which was worthy of, parenthesis, entitled to, all acceptation. And let us emphasize once more the fact that the gospel message is not that Christ died for me, but that he died for sinners. The gospel is addressed to human responsibility and presents a Savior who is ready to save all who will comply with its terms. If men will not come to Christ that they might have life, John 5:40, then their blood is upon their own heads. Therefore will God yet say to them, Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have sent it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 24-29 The preaching of the gospel unto men at large becomes a searching test of their state of heart. It ought to have a powerful influence upon them in breaking their hearts on account of sin. Why did the Son of God leave his heavenly glory and enter a life of unspeakable humiliation here on earth? Why did he suffer such frightful indignities at the hands of men so that his face was spat upon, his hair plucked out, his back scourged? Why was he nailed to the cross of woe where his life's blood was poured out? The answer is, for sin. And can that be thought upon with any seriousness? and the heart not be broken before God. What will melt the hard heart of a man and thought into godly sorrow from sin if the contemplation of Christ's sacrifice will not do it? Oh, my readers, the shedding of the precious blood of Emmanuel ought surely to melt the most adamant heart that is yet out of hell. Would men but ponder the Savior's passion both in the character and degree of it, viewing its bitter ingredients and heightened circumstances, and then also consider that it was human transgressions which brought him to Calvary, surely they would be far more deeply affected for sin than they are now. It is written, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and what follows? This. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him. Zechariah 12.10 Ah, that is true penance, a broken heart from viewing the broken body of Christ, what then must be the state and what must be the punishment of them concerning whom the Savior has to ask? Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Lamentation 112. 
Again, the proclamation of the gospel and the serious consideration of the Savior's sufferings ought to have a powerful effect in turning men from sin. Behold, my reader, the Lord of glory, dying as a sacrifice, making his soul an offering for sin, Isaiah 53.10. Will you deliberately elect to continue living in that for which the Son of God died? Will you regard as a sweet morsel that which was more bitter than gall to the beloved of the Father? God himself condemned sin on the cross, Romans 8.3. Dare you then approve of it? Oh, will you not condemn it too, repudiate it, turn from it in loathing, and seek grace from above to have nothing more to do with it? When you are tempted to sin, recall the bleeding wounds of the suffering Savior. Nothing is more calculated to slay our love for sin than a contemplation of the awful wages which it paid to the Redeemer. Oh, what an indescribably dreadful state must they be in, parenthesis, as the writer and the Christian reader once were, who turned a deaf ear to God's call through the gospel and in so doing despised and rejected his son. What a dreadful and unmistakable evidence is this, that the carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7. Oh, that explains why it is that all men make excuse Luke 14.8, when they are bid to come to the rich feast that divine mercy has spread, it is not carelessness or indifference. No, the real root of the trouble lies much deeper. It is a desperately wicked heart, Jeremiah 17.9, which is opposed to the thrice holy God. That is the source of impenitence and unbelief. Men prefer material and temporal things to spiritual and eternal ones, the pleasures of sin for a season, Hebrew 11.25, rather than those pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16:11, which are at God's right hand. What has just been said above is no theoretical reasoning of ours, but the plain teaching of Christ himself. After he had so solemnly declared, he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, John 3:18. he at once, parenthesis by way of explanation, added, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Verses 19 and 20. No matter what, parenthesis seemingly, plausible excuses men and women may make for their present rejection of the gospel, he who cannot err insists that behind those excuses is love of darkness parenthesis, sin, and a hatred of light. Let men say what they will with respect to their rejection of the gospel. All their objections are founded in their disaffection to truth and holiness. They may claim to respect and believe God's word and that they want to be saved or profess they are saved, but in truth they hate the light because their deeds are evil. They will not part with their idols. They will not forsake that pleasant but broad road which leadeth to destruction. They will not deny self and submit to Christ as their Lord. They are willing to be saved their own way, but not God's. They wish to serve two masters and make the best of both worlds. They may be good members of society and be virtuous and pious, but the real language of their hearts is, We will not have this man to reign over us. Luke 19.14 When people are told that they despise as well as reject Christ, they feel the charge is not true of them. When it is insisted upon that they hate Christ, John 15:8, they suppose the indictment is far too severe. Nay, they imagine they have a high estimate of Christ, that they sincerely own him to be the most excellent one that has ever walked on this earth, and that they are earnestly desirous of being saved by him. 
But a deceived heart has turned him aside, Isaiah 44.20. Had the Jewish nation been told one year before Christ began his public ministry that they would not only scorn him, but put him to death, would not they have indignantly denied such a charge? Most assuredly they would. They would have answered, All our hopes center in him. We are eagerly awaiting his promised advent and shall gladly receive him the moment he appears. And in so speaking, they would have been perfectly sincere. Yet God's infallible word declares that Christ was the one whom the nation abhorred. Isaiah 49.7 And why did they? Because when he stood before them, he was different from what they expected. Ah, my reader, in what has just been said above, we have the divine explanation to the solemn situation which is confronting us today. History has repeated itself. The Jews would have willingly received a Messiah patterned after their own carnal desires. Had Christ presented himself only as a deliverer from their temporal troubles, gratified their fleshly lusts, and not interfered with their selfish plans, he had received a royal welcome from them. But for the Holy One of God, they had no heart. For one who required repentance, for one who came to save them from the present dominion of sin, for one who demanded unqualified submission to God's will, for one who must be received as Lord and Master, they had no love. To forsake all and follow him suited them not. To abandon their idols, mortify the flesh, and enter the path of obedience to his commands and precepts was altogether foreign to their every thought and desire. And is it any different today? Not a whit. Present to men one who was filled with compassion for the suffering, who ministered to the needy, fed the poor, healed the sick, and as a public benefactor and philanthropist, he is universally admired. Or proclaim his, um, him as a deliverer from the wrath to come, or as one who is willing to save from hell and take to heaven, and the movings of self-interest will induce multitudes to welcome him as such. But, my reader, the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be halved in any such manner as this. He must be received just as he is, a whole Christ, as the Scripture present him to us, as a prophet to reveal God's will, and that in order for us to walk therein, as a priest to mediate, offering himself as a sacrifice to God, presenting our sacrifices of praise to him, as a king to occupy the throne of our hearts, to rule us by his precepts, to subdue our enemies. But as such the unregenerate see in him no beauty that they should desire him. Thousands of professing Christians are willing to believe in Christ for salvation, but not to conform to him in obedience. They desire the rest which he gives, but not his yoke. Just as of old the multitudes sought him for the loaves and fishes, yet had no heart for his searching teachings. People want the justification which the gospel proclaims, but not the mortification of the old man which it enjoins. But this cannot be. In order to come to Christ, the sinner must turn from sin and all else that competes for his heart. The truth is that the vast majority of those now bearing his name love their worldly and fleshly lusts far more than they do Christ. Thus it is now with the carnal professors of the gospel. Because Christ answered not their expectations, they entertain prejudice against him as represented in the gospel and are unwilling to come to him. They want a Savior that will let them live quietly in their sins, be indulgent to them in their fleshly courses, and yet bring them to heaven when they can live in sin no longer. But when the gospel represents Christ as one who requires strictness and holiness in all of his followers, who calls for separation from the world and all that come to him, 
who tells them that they must suffer any evil rather than sin and take up the cross if they will have him for their Christ when the gospel offers one who nothing will please but that holiness and strictness which the world derides one who persecutions and reproaches will attend all his followers then prejudice seizes on their souls thus we see why so many will not come to Christ and who they are written by D. Clarkson in 1680 and what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God 1 Peter 4.17 what can it be What must be the portion of those who love darkness and hate the light? Only one answer is possible. The scripture does not leave us in ignorance thereof. If they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Hebrew 12.25 Escape they shall not. The angel that hath a rainbow about his head hath pillars of fire for his feet, Revelation 10.1, to consume them who refuse his peace. He hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, Acts 17.31. And in that day he shall say, But those my enemies which would not that I should reign over them bring hither and slay before me, Luke 19.27. Oh, my reader, if you value your soul all way thoroughly what has just been before you, pass it not on to someone else, but take it home to thyself. Christ cannot be imposed upon, and soon it will be too late to undeceive yourself. A diabolical life and a believing heart are contradictions. No man can with any reason lay claim to a faith in Christ who prefers the pleasures of the world before the sweetness of the Redeemer, that which is an offense to him before that which is his delight. How can they believe in Christ that are carried down with the violent current of their own lust and regard not one tittle of his law? If faith be full of good works, then the lack of such clearly implies the absence of faith. S. Sharnick, 1680. May the Lord deign to add his blessing to these pages for his namesake. Arthur W. Pink. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.